Our sermon this morning is from Daniel chapter 9. Um, we're going to look at Daniel's prayer to God and then Gabriel's uh, manifestation, his, his visit to and his answer of uh, Daniel's prayer in the latter half of Daniel chapter 9. So turn there. Uh, if, you're, if you're using a pew Bible, you can find Daniel chapter 9 on page 699 uh, in your uh, Bibles. Or you can just follow along in your bulletin or uh, whatever you find most convenient. might be good to have a bulletin out because, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, this is a good one to kind of take notes on and kind of mark up and draw on. So maybe grab a bulletin and grab a pencil or pen if you'd, if you'd like to. Um, but we are moving at a pretty good, pretty good clip through the book of Daniel. Uh, uh, we're, we're halfway through the second half of the, of the book. So like we've said kind of in, in the, um, the last few weeks, the first half of Daniel chapter six, or first half of the book of Daniel, chapters one through six are narrative. They are stories kind of recounting uh, Daniel's experiences in the royal courts of Babylon and that of his companions, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. Um, and then the second half of the book is a series of visions that Daniel has kind of during the course of that time. And so, uh, yeah, dreams about you know, beasts and animals and all kinds of things that represent uh, the succession of human kingdoms, uh, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, that kind of, that kind of thing. And so um, it doesn't talk a lot about uh, from Rome until now. Um, oddly enough, but it does, it does talk about up and from Daniel's time up until the Roman Empire, and then it talks about kind of the end of, of all things, the, the last days as it, as it were. And so uh, today in Daniel chapter 9, uh, kind of a, kind of a two, two parts to, the, to Daniel chapter 9. Uh, one is, uh, you know, super easy and, and you know, it's, fun, it's one straightforward and clear and easy to understand and easy to apply. Uh, which is Daniel's prayer to God. And then the other is tricky and weird and enigmatic, and we don't really know uh, exactly what it, what it means. A lot of people have a lot of theories, and so we'll, we'll try our best to kind of figure that out. But we'll look at Daniel's prayer and then Gabriel's answer to his prayer uh, in, the, the book of, or in the chapter of Daniel, the ninth chapter of Daniel. So uh, I will pray for us, and then we will spend some time kind of working our way through it and thinking about it together. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning uh, asking you to meet us here, to help us uh, as we listen to your word. We pray that you would help us to understand it. We pray that you would cause it to uh, sink deep into hearts and take roots and encourage our souls and just change us to make us more like Jesus. We pray that we, that we would be blessed by the uh, reading and hearing and considering of your word together. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay. Start with verse 1 and just work our, way through, work our way right through. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descendant of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. So, Daniel 7 uh, was a dream that Daniel had during the first year of the reign of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Uh, Daniel 8 was a dream that Daniel had during the third year, so two years difference between those two. And uh, King Darius, the king of Persia, defeated Belshazzar uh, about 10 years thereafter. So we're, we're about 10 years 
after the, the dream that Daniel had in the previous chapter. Um, and it is uh, probably right around 539 uh, B.C., uh, when this when this uh, vision happened, these kinds of things. And at this point, Daniel is an old man. Um, he is uh, he probably came into the you know, into exile in Babylon in the events of Daniel chapter one when he was a young man, maybe a teenager, and that was probably sixty, almost seventy years ago. And so by now, he is probably in his in his eighties. Verse two: In the first year of his reign, first year of the reign of King Darius. I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So the desolations of Jerusalem is uh, you know, when Babylon had kind of uh, overtaken and besieged the city of Jerusalem, taken it captive and taken all of the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all of the inhabitants of Israel and sent them into exile uh, elsewhere in the Babylonian empire. And so Daniel is saying, uh, that happened almost 70 years ago, and I'm now reading in the book of Jeremiah that it was supposed to take, it was only supposed to be about 70 years, and then after that, the exile would come to an end. He's probably referring to any number of places in Jeremiah, but the two most prominent would be uh, Daniel or Jeremiah chapter 25 and chapter 29. And so I'll read a couple of passages from J- Jeremiah 25, 29 to let you know what he's talking about, and actually what Daniel was reading when he said that, right? What, what was Daniel reading when he said, according to the word of the Lord in Jeremiah, 70 years uh, must pass. Uh, Jeremiah 25, starting in verse 8, says, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, uh, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations, and I will devote them to destruction, and I will make them a horror, a hissing, an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride and the grinding of the millstones and the, everything happy, right? Anything that's happy in Israel and in Jerusalem, I'm going to uh, banish it. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. And then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon the land all the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For many nations, the great king shall make slaves even of them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and according to the works of their hands. So Jeremiah chapter 25 seems to say, God is saying, I'm going to bring uh, desolation upon the nation of Israel. I'm going to send you into exile, but it's only going to last for 70 years. Similar in in, uh, chapter 29, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So God's promise. Um, Exile is coming. Judgment is coming. Suffering is coming, but it's going to be finite. It's going to be for 70 years and not forever. And Daniel is sitting there reading this and saying, this this thing is almost over. We should probably be coming out of exile. I mean, either Jeremiah was mistaken or lying or... Uh, God is about to bring us out of exile. And so 
here's just one application that I, I you know, don't want to take for granted or, or rush past, which is that it's important for the people of God to read their Bibles. Daniel was reading his Bible when he kind of came to this, uh, you know, had this revelation from the Lord. And, and Daniel was, again, was an old man. He'd been walking with the Lord for decades. He had been an advisor to kings and emperors. He had seen miracles. He had performed miracles. He was the second in command in, in this massive kingdom. He had personally received all kinds of divine revelation. He had declared prophecies and had seen those prophecies come true exactly as he had said that they would. So if there's anyone on the planet at that point who could have thought, I probably don't need to read my Bible. That's old hat, right? There's nothing that I, there's nothing that I could read in there that I don't already know, that I haven't already learned. I've taught it a dozen times, and so I don't need to, to read it per se. If there's anyone who could have thought that, it would have been Daniel. And Daniel still sets aside time regularly to read his Bible. Friends, you cannot have a successful life as a Christian without reading your Bible, studying your Bible, meditating on your Bible, hearing the word preached like we're doing right now, and then spending time in it uh, on your own as well. That is a a mission-critical component of a healthy Christian life. And we live in a cultural moment where a lot of people presume to know God or know about God apart from the means of grace that God has given them through which they are to know God and know about God. Namely, his word, right? I've heard... Uh, you know, over over the last few years, last few decades, I've heard a lot of people say things like, I don't like to read my Bible. I don't need to read my Bible. Uh, I'm spiritual, but not religious. I'm into Jesus, but not into the church. Or uh, I don't get anything out of it when I do read my Bible. I actually feel like I experience God more and better and in a more profound way when I'm in nature or walking in the woods or walking on the the beach or I've read everything that the Bible says and I already know it or or um, uh, I've read, you know, I, I hear what the Bible says about God, but the God that I know and the God that I worship would never say or do something like that or... Uh, I have received a word from the Lord and the Lord has spoken to me despite the fact that they may or may not have opened their Bible uh, and read from it in, in years. So I'm not saying that people can't receive a word from the Lord today. I think they can. I'm not saying that you cannot experience God in nature or in his creation. I think that you can. But the main way and the primary way that God speaks to his people, the main and primary way that you uh, can and should and will hear a word from the Lord is by reading the word of the Lord, by reading the, the Bible. It's the main way that we experience God, the main way that we learn what God wants to communicate to us. And so, you know, if you're someone who uh, reads your Bible regularly, praise God for that. Keep it up. In fact, maybe... 
um, yeah, engage with a, with a church member this week and, and um, encourage them to do it with you. Ask them what they've read from or learned in their Bible recently. And if they have, then, then listen and be encouraged by what they tell you. And if they haven't, then uh, just gently invite them to consider doing it and to, to consider doing it uh, with you. If you're not regularly reading your Bible but want to, let me know. I'd be happy. I've got a number. I've got more than I can count. Bible reading plan, read the Bible in a year, read the Bible, you know, for five minutes a day, whatever it is. Um, you know, got some that are written by Puritans that have from hundreds of years ago. Got a friend who, um, got a friend who made his own read the Bible in a year plan. He calls it the, uh, the alternating chrono-harmonic ecclesiocentric Bible reading plan. So I, I'm not going to break down every word of that, but it's interesting. So if you want, if you're interested, let me know. I'll see. He's got a whole thing he wrote about it. Um, and why, why he, this is his Bible reading plan and why he recommends it for others. And so, um, if that seems a bit heady or a bit out of reach, uh, one strategy that I recommend, uh, to people all the time is just to, um, you know, tailor your reading of the Bible to the rhythm of your local church. So get in a church, commit to a church, and then let the rhythms of that church inform your practice of the spiritual disciplines of reading your Bible. And so find out what that church is going to preach on Sunday, and then maybe Thursday, Friday, Saturday, you read that text. Maybe get in a small group and then find out what you guys are going to read and discuss on Wednesday or Thursday, and then Monday and Tuesday, read that text, right? And so you've got kind of an an easy and an accessible way to to just, you know, be held accountable to read uh, your, your Bible. Whatever strategy you use, it's up to you. But the principle remains, read your Bible, study your Bible, meditate on your Bible like Daniel did, because that's the main way that God speaks to his people is through his word. And so Daniel is reading his Bible, comes across these verses in Jeremiah that says the exile is going to last for 70 years. According to 2 Chronicles 36, we're going to kind of um, mention in passing a lot of texts, so don't feel like you have to look up, look up all of them, but maybe write them down so you can look them up later if you want to. But um, according to 2 Chronicles 36, there's a specific reason for why uh, Jeremiah chose that number 70. Uh, and that is uh, so that the land could enjoy its Sabbaths, which is a weird thing to say. But in order to understand it, you have to flip back to Leviticus chapter 26. In it, God is kind of communicating and rehearsing his covenant to his people, saying, this is what I want you to do, right? This is uh, in the book of Leviticus when Israel is, uh, they've, they've left the Red Sea and they are kind of in this period of wandering when they are going to then uh, go into the, the promised land. And so God is communicating his covenants and he says, if you keep my commandments, I'll bless you. I will give you victory and peace and prosperity and security. But if you rebel and if you disobey and if you break my covenant, I will punish you. There's blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And one of the specific things that Leviticus 26 mentions as a command that that hypothetically would have been disobeyed that will result in judgment is keeping the Sabbath. And specifically, uh, two kinds of Sabbath, the, the weekly Sabbath that God commands Israel to keep, where you work six days and you take the seventh day off, it's rest for the person, but also an agricultural annual Sabbath where uh, they were to work their land 
for six years, and then on the seventh year, uh, give the land uh, a, a year off to, to rest. And it was kind of to create agricultural rotations and, and rhythms. And God says, if you don't do that, if you don't keep the Sabbath, uh, the weekly and the, you know, every seven years Sabbaths, then I will scatter you among the nations. I will unsheath the sword after you and your land will be a desolation. The, and then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it's desolate. While you are in the enemy's land, then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest, and the rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. So before Israel ever enters into the promised land, God says, keep the Sabbaths. And he says, if you don't, every Sabbath year that you work in, that you don't give your fields rest, I'm going to keep a tally. And then uh, eventually I'm going to send you into exile, and I'm going to give the land all of the rest that it that I intended for it to have and that it didn't have under your, when, when you were there. And I mean, wouldn't you know, the, the nation of Israel, among other things, uh, disobeyed God's command to the Sabbath. They said, because the Sabbath was a gift, right? The Sabbath was a gift that God, it wasn't like, you know, you have to make a pilgrimage to Metre. It wasn't like a thing you had to go do. It was a gift. It was, he's saying, I want, it's a command. You have to keep the Sabbath, but it's also a gift. You get to keep the Sabbath. You get to take a day off every week. How nice is that? You get to, uh, you know, mix up and change up how your land is going to yield its crops, and it's probably going to result in healthier, you know, vegetation and things like that, and Israel disobeyed. They said, you know, thanks for the gift, but we'd rather make more money you know, we'd rather work seven days a week than six so that we can make more and have more. And we'd rather work the land over and over and over and over and over and over and not give it any rest. And eventually they went into, into exile. And so presumably that period of disobedience lasted for, I don't know, somewhere around 490 years between, you know, when they entered into the promised land and eventually when they were, um, when they went into exile, there was well over 490 years, but presumably there was at least 490 years and at least 70 Sabbath years that Israel refused to uh, acknowledge and practice. And so God says, because of that, I'm going to send you into exile and I'm going to give the land the rest that I wanted it to have that it didn't get while it was under your occupation. So Daniel's reading this and he goes, he's in the middle of the exile. He's in the middle of the 70 years that was the result of that 490 plus years of disobedience. He's like, this is about to end. The 70 years are almost over. And it prompts Daniel in verse three to start to pray. He says, I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So this is another good principle. Daniel doesn't just read his Bible and then close it and walk, walk away and go about his day. He reads his Bible and he prays. And those two things happen together. They're kind of fused together. The reading of his Bible informs his prayer. He's praying as he reads his Bible. Right? So if you're just reading your Bible as an intellectual pursuit, you know, to, to, like you would a history textbook, then you're, then you're uh, inevitably not, uh, you know, you're not deriving as much from that Bible reading as God intends for you to derive. And the same thing, the flip side is also true. If you're just praying, but your prayers are random and abstract and just kind of haphazard and they're not informed by and guided by and led by scripture, then your prayer times are not going to yield uh, as much as they could uh, either. Um, yeah, if you've ever been reading your Bible and it feels boring or dry or irrelevant, I would suggest praying to God 
out loud even, as you are reading your Bible. Or if you've ever been trying to pray and found it, you know, you pray for 30 seconds, 60 seconds, run out of things to pray about, difficult to, to focus or concentrate, then I would suggest instead of just praying randomly what you're thinking about, read, read a psalm and then pray, read Daniel 9. Read, read the prayer that we're about to read and then pray it along with the Bible as you are reading. A seminary professor of mine uh, wrote a book uh, talking about this exact practice called Praying the Bible. So he's like the spiritual disciplines guy. He would teach every seminary student how to practice the spiritual disciplines. And he would say, yeah, like if you're reading your Bible and not praying, you're not reading the Bible as God intended you to read it. And if you're praying and not reading your Bible, then you're not praying as God intended for you to, to pray. And Daniel is praying through the, the Bible as he reads it. So he turns to the Lord and he makes his confession, verse 4, saying, now, this prayer is long. I'm just going to sprint through the whole prayer. It goes from, I think, verse 4 to verse 19. So I'm just going to read it all kind of in one fell swoop. But as we do, I want you to kind of uh, pay attention and, and look for one of three. Uh, we're going to see three recurring themes as we walk through this prayer. Three, like a, like a drum that's being hit over and over and over. This is where you could take a pen or pencil and maybe, every, I mean, I think, maybe unless I'm wrong, every clause, every sentence, every phrase in this prayer I think can fit neatly into one of three themes, one of three categories, and it just kind of uh, kind of floats in and out of them. And so, in fact, so kids, if you do, if you have a pen or pencil, kids, if you if you uh, maybe take your bulletin and like uh, yeah, categorize each sentence or each phrase. I'll give you you know I'll give you a lollipop or something after the after the sermon. We did that a few weeks ago. It was fun. Um, so the three themes that I want you to look for. One is the greatness of God. Two, yeah, everyone's going to grab a pencil. Get, yeah, get some highlighters or something, whatever you want to do. Uh, the great, so greatness of God, the sinfulness of God's people, and a plea for mercy. I would submit that every uh, phrase in this prayer uh, is either declaring the greatness of God, acknowledging the sinfulness of God's people, or it's an appeal to God for him to be merciful to them. And so as I read it, think critically and carefully and kind of say, okay, verse four is this, verse five is this, you know, whatever you want to going to do, but it'll help you understand and kind of see the through line that goes through it. So starting in verse four, it says, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and your rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us belongs open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel who are near and those who are far away in the lands in which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To you, O Lord, belongs, or to us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings and our princes and our fathers because we have sinned against you. But to the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord by walking in his laws, which he has set before us uh, by his prophets, by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed against your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses uh, Leviticus 26, among other places. Uh, um, the servant of God have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words 
which he has spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there is, has not done, been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord is righteous in all the works he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. Now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned and done wickedly. Little hint, I would contend that everything that we've read up until now is one of those two themes, the greatness of God or the sinfulness of the people of God. Verse 16, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem, and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, Listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear and forgive and pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. The greatness of God, the sinfulness of the people of God, and an appeal to God for mercy. I would, I would submit that if that, was all, if that was all you prayed, if that prayer right there, if reciting that prayer and meaning it and actually thinking about how it applies to your life was all you prayed for the next 30 days, I think that that would be a healthy, vibrant, soul-animating, conviction of sin-inducing, assurance of salvation-giving uh, prayer life for for you, uh, kids. What so? What kids in here have been in the uh, like the the younger kids Sunday school class within the last few years? Okay, so uh, who remembers the four kinds of prayers that you guys learned at Sunday school class? Lucy, what are the what are the four kinds of prayers you use? It was on that chart, like the thing. She's got three out of four. Anyone else want to help her with the fourth one? Zeke? Repentance? That, I think it's the same as confession. So that was one. Noel? Thanksgiving. Yep. So adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. I was expecting, I was expecting that to a grown-up to say those. Because the the like on I think in that thing, it, it, it describes them as um, I love you prayers. Um Want to help me out with what, what are the other? I love you prayers. I'm sorry prayers. Thank you prayers. 
and please help prayers, right? So, and, and so I would act, so like, the, I think that's a good template for any adult or child to kind of, uh, you know, structure your prayers around, uh, adoring God for who he is, confessing our sin to God, thanking God for his mercy and his provision, and then supplication, asking God for, for help and for what we need. And I would contend that those, you know, this prayer where we see those kind of three, you know, the, the greatness of God, the sinfulness of the people of God, and a plea to God for mercy. You can kind of see those uh, four uh, elements all in, you know, these prayers. God is great and awesome, keeps his covenant and steadfast love. Righteousness belongs to the Lord. Mercy and forgiveness belong to the Lord. He's kept his word, right? When we pray, we're coming before God, we're adoring him for who he is and for his glory, and we're thanking him for how he has uh, taking care of us and been good to us, right? Confession, right? We've sinned, we've done wrong, we've broken your law, we've turned aside and refused to listen to your word, we're ashamed, we've invited judgment and calamity onto ourselves. Part of what it means to pray is to acknowledge honestly with real and sober-minded introspection how we have sinned against God and, and broken his law. And then a, a plea for mercy, right? Supplication. Turn your anger away. Turn your wrath away. Forgive us. Listen to us. Hear us. Look at us. See us. And do all of that not because of our innate righteousness, but because of your mercy and for the sake of your great name. Right? Faithful prayers, not just acknowledging who God is and who I am, but it's also being honest and bringing our requests and our prayers to God. Here's here I am. Here's what I'm experiencing. Here's what I'm feeling. Here's what I'm anxious about. Here's what I'm scared of. Here's what I need help with. Right? You don't have to pretend to be stronger than you are with God because God knows already anyway. You can be real and vulnerable and transparent and ask God for the things that you need and he will hear you and he will listen. The greatness of God the sinfulness of the people of God, and a plea for mercy. So that's Daniel's prayer. Then in verse 20, it says, while I was speaking and praying. So Daniel is actively in the process of praying, verses 4 through 19. While I was praying, confessing my sin and confessing the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God. While I was still speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel whom I had seen in the first vision, uh, he came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. Sometimes God answers prayers quickly. Sometimes God takes a very long time to answer prayers, and we have to be patient. Here, God answers Daniel's prayer instantly. Verse 22, uh, he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to you to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Right? When you started praying, a word went out, and I departed and was coming here specifically to you so that I could encourage you and answer your prayers. And here I am. The Lord has sent me uh, to give you insight and understanding and revelation from him. Right? The... Daniel's prayer was about uh, the end of the exile. It was supposed to last 70 years. It's been almost 70 years. You're hoping the exile will end soon. You're praying and asking God 
to make that happen. You're asking God if that's the case, if it is going to ensue. And here's the answer. Here's what God is intending to do, starting in verse 24. Here's where it gets a little strange. Here's where it gets a little difficult to, to know what exactly is happening. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people, your holy city, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. Uh, And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one uh, shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And it shall end, uh, and its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be, or, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a covenant, a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So, like I said, this paragraph is probably one of the most difficult to interpret or one of the most enigmatic paragraphs in the, in the Old Testament. There are tons of pastors and scholars who just readily admit that they don't know what it means. They're not sure how to interpret it. I think I probably count myself among them. Um, there's lots of pastors and scholars who insist that they know exactly what it means. To the day, to the minute, I know many of them personally. I've studied under them. I'm not entirely convinced. Um, but the catch is, like, the, the, the reason why it's difficult to understand, difficult to interpret, and difficult to have certainty on is that in order to arrive uh, with certainty, strong conviction on what this paragraph is, means and is talking about, there's a bunch of questions that you have to answer that it's just, they're kind of hard to answer. Questions like, is this past... Is this passage talking about something that happened in the past, or is it something that's still happening in the future, or both? Or the phrase at the beginning uh, of 70 weeks that are decreed for the people, right? Does that mean uh, 70? I mean, technically in the, in the Hebrew, it means 70 periods of seven. So periods of, like, what, what does that mean? 70, uh, literally, just 70 weeks? Because it, it could mean a week of seven days. So does that mean 70 weeks, in which case we're talking about like a year and a half? Or does it mean uh, 70 weeks of years, 70 periods of seven-year periods? So then we're talking about not a year and a half, we're talking about 490 years. Or is that number even literal or symbolic? If you think in Matthew chapter 18, when they're talking about how often you should forgive your neighbor, Jesus says, don't forgive your neighbor seven times a day. He says, forgive your neighbor 70 times seven. Seven, 70 periods of seven worth of times you should forgive your neighbor. Now, Jesus isn't saying, forgive your neighbor 490 times, no more and no less. He's just saying, forgive your neighbor a lot, like just a whole lot, a big, large number, an indefinite, massive number. That's how you're much, like not seven, but just a lot. 
So maybe that's what's happening here. Maybe 70 weeks is just a lot of time, a, a, big, a big stretch of time. I'm not sure what it is. Or um, let's say that it is, seven, it is 490 years specifically. Okay, well, then are we talking about an actual year, the, the amount of time it takes for the earth to rotate around the sun, 365 days? Or are we talking about a Jewish calendar year, which was marked by 12 30-day periods, so 360 days, which leaves a delta of five days, which if you extrapolate that out over 490 years, you get a, a variance of like six or seven years. That, that changes the time clock a little bit. What about leap year, right? All this stuff. So you got to figure out, you got to account for all of that. Finally, it says uh, 70 weeks are decreed uh, from uh, when the word, the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Well, that, that happened several times. There were several degrees from different people to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. It kind of happened over a long period of time in phases. Different kings and different leaders kind of gave different decrees in different ways about th that Jerusalem needs to be rebuilt. And so uh, how you understand the numbers and the, the years and symbolic and which, which decree is going to affect all of, uh, of, of that. And so there's a lot, I mean, again. We're talking dozens of interpretations of how to, how to handle this passage. Some guys, um, if you remember Antiochus Epiphanes, the guy we looked at the last two weeks, the Greek uh, ruler who was particularly uh, violent and ruthless with the people of God in the, inter in the intertestamental period, around 170 BC, they say, well, that's this, a lot of this is talking about him. So let's start with him in 170, and they kind of work their way back, and the closest date that they can kind of find is... Um, not a decree to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, but, ac but actually the writing of Jeremiah. So Jeremiah 25 that we read a few minutes ago, they're like, that counts. Jeremiah saying that the exile will last 70 years, that is effectively a, um, a preemptive uh, decree to rebuild Jerusalem. So it starts then, and it ends with Antiochus Epiphanes uh, a few hundred years, you know, a couple hundred years before Jesus. Some people say that, that's eh, it's a tough sell, but what are you going to do? Some say, uh, it's not Antiochus Epiphanes, they say, well, it's a 490-year period, and it starts with King Cyrus. Uh, he makes a decree in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, which is a year, which is in 538 BC. It's a year after this. Um, and so uh, they say it starts then seven weeks later, right? So the, the, the first seven weeks, uh, seven weeks later come, comes to, the, it lands you in the ministry of Ezra and Nehemiah when they are dedicating the temple and kind of restoring some religious practices in the temple. And then you kind of, then the 62 weeks uh, is a big, long period of time. And that kind of lands you somewhere around uh, when Jesus is born or when Jesus is alive. And then one week, I mean, you know, it's seven years, but they're like, eh, 730, it's about the same. Fast forward to when Jesus is dead, the death of Jesus. And so they say, yeah, you start with Cyrus and you've got, you've got the, the decree to build the temple. The temple is built. Jesus's life and birth, and then Jesus's death. Again, kind of a tough sell. Some guys uh, say it wasn't Cyrus who uh, decreed to rebuild the temple in 538. It starts with another decree from another guy named Artaxerxes that we see in Ezra chapter 7. Told you, a lot of, lot of Bible verses that were just, you just got to write them down, do your homework on it, listen to it, you know. Yeah, listen to it and do your homework. But So they say, um, it's not Cyrus, it's Artaxerxes, which is in 458 BC, and here's what's interesting about that, maybe why it might be true, is uh, if you take 458 BC, 
And then you fast forward 490 years, you land at 33 AD. Hey, that, that seems, right, maybe that works. I don't know, maybe not. Um, so, so they're like, yeah, the, the, the 458 BC, that's when it started. But the problem is like, we don't really know what happened seven, but set, it's, it's like the, the, the midway points don't really mean a lot there, but at least the total, it's 490 and it goes from, from the A decree to rebuild the Jerusalem and then the day that Jesus uh, died. So that's possible. Some say, no, it wasn't that. It was another decree from Artaxerxes, which we see in Nehemiah chapter 2, where Nehemiah, where Artaxerxes sends Nehemiah to finish building the wall, and that's in 445 B.C. So they say that's when it starts, it's 445 B.C. And then they say, fast forward seven weeks or about 49 years, and you land about when the city of Jerusalem is finally finished and rebuilt. So like, that's... That's the landmark there, the seven-week the seven week mark. Fast forward 62 weeks, and again, this is where they kind of have to do some chopping. They're like, it doesn't really land anywhere unless you shave off some time because of the Jewish calendar year and the leap years and this and that and the other. And they're like, but if you factor in all that stuff, you land right around uh, 33 AD where, where Jesus is, dies on the cross. But then you still have that, sev- that 70th week, the last week. And they're like, well... So when Jesus died on the cross, we had gotten 69 out of 70 weeks. And then there's like this unanticipated, a pause button is pressed. Because when Jesus dies on the cross, uh, everything that this is talking about is God dealing with Israel. And when Israel murders Jesus, it's like God says, time out. I'm done with, I just need a minute. And so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to stop dealing with you guys for a minute. Um, and then it ushers in what's called the church age, which is what we're in now. And so we have 2,000 plus years of God saving Gentiles, uh, kind of because he was just a little bit, he's over it with Israel for a minute. But at some point in the future, God's going to press unpause. Uh, and that's going to be when the last seven years, the last week, as it were, God's going to pick back up where he left off in 33 AD. And so you've got uh, everything that you see here up until the 69th week, pause, church age, at some point in the future, there's a rapture, and that's unpause. And then there's the last seven years, and that's where God picks up his dealings with the nation of Israel and kind of takes, you know, finishes up a lot of what he's got going on here, at the end of which he returns, and that's kind of the end of, of all things. That's when he establishes his kingdom. So, like you said, a lot of options, kind of tricky, kind of tough to nail down. I don't presume to know. Uh, exactly which of, you know, exactly what all these things are referring to. But just because I don't, I, just because I would submit that we can't really know exactly which of those interpretations is the best and what all the things in this passage are referring to doesn't mean that we can't know anything and that we shouldn't have some strong convictions that are born out of this text. Because I would submit that if you just read through this text and you have no preconceived notion in mind, no uh, interpretation or theological agenda that you're trying to make it conform to, you can still read this text and take it for what it says and have a decent idea of what's going to happen. You get a timeline that's something like this, right? You get a timeline that says some ruler at some point is going to issue a decree to Jerusalem. Take your pick on which one of those is. And then 49 years later, or some period of time later, um, there's going to be the coming of an anointed one. Let's see, that's in 
Uh, that, I think that's in verse 24, maybe. A coming of an anointed one. We don't know who that is. It could be um, a person. Uh, it could be, let's see, yeah, in verse 25. The coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. So I don't know what that is. It could be a person. It could be Jerusalem. It could be the temple itself. I don't know. Then uh, 62 weeks later, so 434 years later, or some period of time goes by, and those years will be a troubled time. So those 434 years, I don't know, that sounds like a decent, it's a good guess to think they're talking about the intertestamental period, the time between when the Old Testament was written and when Jesus kind of arrives on the scene. It's about 400 years, and it was a troubled time. And then uh, at the end of this 434 years, uh, the anointed one will be cut off and have nothing. I think we're in verse 25 now still. Or No, yeah, we're in verse 26. The anointed one will be cut off and shall have nothing. That sounds pretty, like a pretty good guess that that's talking about Jesus dying on the cross. Jesus, the anointed one, shall be cut off, rejected by his people, and have nothing. He shall be, he shall be killed. So we got that. And then we've got some other things that happen after Jesus' death. Some other guy, a prince, some other prince who has people that follow him are going to try to destroy the city and the sanctuary, and there's going to be all of this just devastation, right? Um, the angel come, there are floods and wars and desolations and idolatry and a covenant between that prince and some people, uh, and, and then there's going to be, you know, no, they're not going to be allowed to offer sacrifices in the temple. There's going to be abominations. It's like really bad. Sometime after Jesus, after Jesus' death on the cross, there's going to be really bad stuff with suffering and persecution and idolatry until finally in the end, the one who is causing all of that, the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So whoever it is that is perpetrating all of that uh, suffering for the people of God, he will be put down. And then we can kind of circle back up to verse 24. Then uh, that's when the holy city, the transgression will be finished, sin will be put to an end, iniquity will be atoned for, and there will be everlasting righteousness brought in. So the, the general timeline is that you've got decree to rebuild Jerusalem, Jerusalem is rebuilt, a bunch of suffering, and then the Messiah dies on the cross, and then a bunch more, even worse suffering, and then the Messiah comes back, judges his enemies, saves his people, establishes his kingdom. No matter what you believe about all of the stuff, that's the that's the framework. And that, that's a hill I will die on. Right? So, like, I won't die on the hill of, like, who are all of the, you know, which one is it? Or is it the rapture going to happen? And then the tribulation? And when's it going to happen? And what are the signs uh, around it? And is it going to be seven years or three and a half years? And how does this all fit with Revelation? And who is the Antichrist? And who, what's the mark of the beast? Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not big into m much of that. I'm not going to die on any of those hills, but I will die on the hill of the, the suffering and exile of the people of God that God sent them into. It's not going to last forever. God has not forsaken and abandoned his people forever. He's going to bring them back. And the way that he's going to bring them back is through sending his Messiah to them. That Messiah is going to die to satisfy the wrath of God so that the people of God can be saved and then the Messiah is going to be raised from the dead so that he can then come back later and judge his enemies and save his people and establish his kingdom forever and ever. That, I would argue, is the main theme that kind of shines through Daniel 9, 24 to 27. It's the person and work of Jesus 
the Messiah, who saves his people, judges his enemies, and establishes his kingdom. And that's what Daniel was praying about in the first half of the chapter of the whole. He was praying, saying, is the exile ever going to end? I'm reading the Bible, and it looks like it might end soon. Is that the case? And the answer that he gets from Gabriel is, yes, it is going to happen sooner rather than later. And the way that it's going to, it's going, you're going to come out of exile, and then eventually, hundreds of years later, the Messiah is going to come and bring finality, right? The, the restoration and the redemption of the people of God that we see in the return from exile is a type. It's, a, it's an illustration. It's a shadow. And eventually, the substance is Jesus coming, dying on the cross, raised from the dead, coming back later to judge his people, to judge his enemies and save his people and establish his kingdom. That's what God's saying to Daniel. And I think it's a pretty safe bet to understand that that's what God is saying to us. Right? God is speaking to us saying, the Messiah has come. He's died on the cross for sinners to satisfy the wrath of God that is rightly deserved by sinners so that if they trust in him, they can be forgiven of their sin and reconciled to God. And then that same Messiah was raised from the dead. And that same Messiah is going to come back eventually. And he is going to judge and condemn unrepentant sinners. And he is going to save and gather and keep forever those people who trust in him as he establishes his kingdom and welcomes them into it. I think that's what God is saying to us through texts like this. I think God is calling us to respond by trusting in him, obeying him, and walking with him in repentance and faith together as a, as a church family. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with his people. Lord, to you belongs righteousness and mercy and forgiveness. Your words are true and sure, and everything that you do is right. Lord God, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled and turned aside from your commandments. To us belongs open shame because of how we have transgressed your law and turned aside and refused to obey your voice. And Lord, we pray that you would turn aside your wrath and your anger, even though we deserve it because of our sin. We pray that you would hear us and forgive us, not because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.